Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. This is the Word of God. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. This is God's Word. I want to preach to you this morning on these verses, Romans 6, 1 through 10, and I simply want to title my sermon, United with Christ. United with Christ. Please, let's pray together as we ask God for His help. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what You have already revealed to us through the singing of Your Word, through the praying of Your Word, and now, God, as we hear the preaching of your word. I pray that you would open our hearts. I pray that you would help me to speak your truth, not my own ideas, and that you would open our minds to receive it in such a way that we are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit today. For our good and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. After my grandfather was diagnosed with dementia, I remember hearing how he woke up in the middle of the night calling out for my grandmother. She found him scared and confused. He was horrified and saddened. She asks what's wrong, and he states, I don't know where I am. You know, if any of you have had loved ones who have gone through something like dementia, Alzheimer's, you know the sorrow of seeing someone, seeing someone's mind slip, and you can resonate with the horror of confusion. Now, I, I think there's a sense in which we can all resonate with the horror of this kind of confusion. 
because there has been times in life, and maybe you are in this time of life where things are confusing. And in horror, you cry out, I don't know where I am, lost, wandering. Now, don't, don't you want to live a life that is based on some kind of concrete reality that is joyful, that is hopeful, a future that you can really believe in. I mean, I know I want that. I don't, I don't want to live my life in some kind of wasted sort of way where I, 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 I'm confused and I'm lost and I'm just going through the motions and I'm just getting over the sorrow through sin and, uh, and, and just trying to get myself through the day. I think we all want to know where we are, have security, have safety based on knowing where our life is headed. But the problem is sin. Like we live in this world that's just Sin is just mounted up all around us, outside and inside of us. And as a result, we end up in these spirals, in this confusion, and life is crazy and chaotic, and we sometimes feel like we have just made a wreck of our life, and everything is destroyed, and there is no hope. We feel worthless. But good news, we don't have to. I want to look at these 10 verses today, and I want to show you something that is good news for all of us who want some security and safety and hope and joy in our life. We don't have to continue the way that we've been continuing. There is a whole new reality that can be ours. And for those of you that are in Christ, those of you that have trusted in Jesus, I want to tell you it already is yours. This is a declaration today, not of what you must do, but of what has been done for you and what your reality now is as a result. It's three words, three words, united with Christ, united with Christ. When life is bleak, our morals are betrayed, our actions are bitter, our lives are empty, we long for security, but we don't have it, so we find it in temporal pleasures. We long for joy, but we don't have it. And, and, and so we, 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 we find it in fleeting ideas. We, we long for hope, but we don't have it because we put our hope in people and situations that fail us. But what we have declared to us today is something better than all of that that gives us true security, true joy, and true hope. Three words, united with Christ. Now, this whole bit in Romans 6 begins with a question. 
Paul is coming off of talking about our standing that we have in Jesus, no longer in Adam, Romans chapter 5. And he asks a question that he knows is probably going to come from the the legalistic uh, uh, Jewish camp of his day. And that is this. Wait a second. If it is all by grace, and we are by grace put into Christ and no longer in Adam, then does that just mean that Christians can continue in sin so that grace may abound? In other words, since we are saved by grace, is it okay for us to just say, hey, you know, my sin magnifies God's grace, and so I might as well just enjoy sin and continue in that path because it just multiplies God's grace in my life and brings more glory to God. This is an accusation that would have been coming, not from Christians, but from those uh, critiquing Christianity in Paul's day. Meaning, they don't understand Christians. They're like, I I, I can't wrap my mind around these people. How is it that they would be saved by grace, but not take advantage of that grace? And this is a confusing question. This is actually maybe the biggest reoccurring question I get when I share the gospel with people. When I'm walking through the gospel with an unbeliever and I talk about grace and how we're saved by grace, almost every time there is this question which comes along that says something like, well, wait a second, pause. If that's the case, then why obey? Why obey God at all? Why don't Christians just go on and sin if we're saved by grace? And what Paul is saying is this. He's saying you ask that question because because you don't understand Christians. I don't think this question comes from Christians. I think if you're a Christian, you have an answer to this question. Now, you might not be able to articulate it, and that's what I want to help you to do today, is articulate your response to this question. Why? would we not go on in sin and take advantage of God's grace? Now, that that begins this whole bit on our union with Christ. Verse 2, Paul answers the question and he says, by no means. This is the strongest, most powerful denunciation he can come up with. By no means. How, he says, can someone who died to sin, everybody say, died, How can somebody who died to sin still live in it? Paul is bringing up a new concept here. He's saying that Christians have died. Are you with me? When I was growing up, one of my neighbors killed one of my neighbors, another neighbor. He was arrested put on trial, ended up getting the death penalty. And in 2006, he was executed by the state. He was in jail, you know, in chains, so to speak. And the only way out for Glenn Benner was going to be through death. And as visceral of an analogy that is, that's actually 
Not a bad analogy for our state in Adam. Sin has caused us to receive the death penalty from God, and the only way out of these chains is through death. And what Paul is saying is that Christians have died. We have died. Our state in Adam was that of a penalty that led to death. And Paul is saying that we are dead to sin. And then Paul goes on in verse 3 and 4 to say, let me tell you about the initiation rite of these Christians. Just in case you don't know. It's called baptism. And let me tell you what this is. Even our initiation into the faith is a picture of what? Death, burial, and then resurrection. In other words, he's saying, look, for those who think grace is a license to sin, let me tell you what we do in church. Verse 3, look at it. He says, do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Pause right there. Biblically and historically, baptism is a sign that the believer is united with Christ. And maybe you've been here before for a baptism service at this church or at another church. I mean, if we're honest, it's not a pretty picture. You stand in front of a whole bunch of people, not wearing your best clothes, wearing something that you can get dunked in. You stand before a whole group of people and you are immersed. The word literally means immersed, to go under water. It is messy. It is a jarring image to stand in front of all of this congregation and to be dunked. By the way, need I remind you of your childhood? A dunk tank was a sign of shame. That's why you wanted the principal to be put in the dunk tank, right? And you wanted to be first in line with that ball. To be dunked is a shameful kind of thing. You go under the water and your hair is all over your face and wet. Your, 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 uh, your clothes are wet. Your makeup runs. It's vulnerable. It's defenseless. It's submission. It's a sign of death. He says we are baptized into his death, meaning a, a baptism is a funeral service. It's a solemn declaration that this believer has died to their previous self. They've died to their sin. They've died to the tyranny of wickedness. They've died to the old world, and they are something that is new. This is why, by the way, you cannot separate faith from baptism. Baptism without faith attached to it is uh, just a religious ritual that means nothing. 
you just so happen to get wet in front of a bunch of people. It means something. It means that you've died. It means you're united with Christ in his death. But that's only the first half. We die, he says, to live. Verse 4 continues. We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So baptism displays a funeral but it displays something else as well, doesn't it? You come out wet. You come out drenched like birth, like new birth, like a new creation. Our baptism states to us and, and everybody else that I am a new creature. You see, for the, the Apostle Paul... The very picture of baptism eliminates a cheap grace kind of theology, which would say, well, we can be a Christian and then just continue on blatantly in sin. Paul says our, 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 the, our very initiation rite speaks against that. We're baptized to display new life, meaning we don't have the, the benefits of salvation say, forgiveness of sins and heaven, without the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It all comes together. We die so that, in order that, are you with me? In order that we might live. And then Paul gets to the main point in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. United. Everybody say? United. united. That word, united, means to be grown together. To be fused into one. This is not some kind of gradual blending with Jesus, but rather this is a bonding with Jesus that occurs in a moment and it is a permanent bonding. The theologians call this union with Christ. And it's, it's, it's actually hard for us to wrap our minds around because there's nothing else like it. We don't describe our relationships with anybody in this way or any institution. One person put it like this. He said, I'm an American, but I would not call myself in Washington. Or you might say, I go to Joel's church, which by the way, I never like this church being called Joel's church, but I'm just using this as an analogy. Please don't ever call this Joel's church. This is God's church, pastored by four elders, and we're congregate anyway. But you would never say, I'm in Joel." You see what I'm saying? We don't use terminology like that. And so, so we, we, we are forced here to wrap our minds around a new concept. That we're not just friends with Jesus. Yes, we are. Jesus isn't just our Savior. Yes, He is. He's not just our Lord and Master, but He is our Lord and Master. 
but, but we are in Christ. We have union with Christ. We are permanently bonded together with Jesus Christ. I, I, I think it's this. this is, we're talking here about the height of a relationship. And this relationship with the believer and Jesus Christ is so profound, it moves us into the realm of mystery. And we can hardly wrap our feeble minds around it. As a matter of fact, it's a big deal in the Bible. There are over 160 references in the New Testament to being in Christ. That's how our relationship in the Bible is described. However, even as the Bible talks about our unity with Jesus, the Bible doesn't just simply explain it for us in simple terms. Again, we're entering into the realm of mystery, and often when we're dealing with mystery, what we have is analogies and illustrations. And so the Bible gives us various illustrations to try to help us wrap our minds around this wonderful concept of being united with Jesus. So, for example, Jesus himself uses shocking analogies. John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. How united are we in Jesus? Well, what Jesus says is, as united as a fruit-bearing branch is to a vine, that's how united you are to me. What he says in the previous chapter, John 14, 20, I think is even more profound and more shocking. Jesus says, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Can we just pause for a second and be reminded that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has eternally existed as three persons but one? Not three gods, one God with three distinct persons. And Jesus is saying, I have been united with the Father for all of eternity. And you are united with me and with God. Not to say that we are God. But what he's saying is, is that this is how in Christ you actually are. That you have a permanent bond with Jesus Christ that is as intimate and close as he has shared with the Father for all of eternity past and will share with the Father for all of eternity future. This church is mind-boggling. Analogies continue through the New Testament. Ephesians 5, we see the analogy of a husband and a wife, which displays us with Christ, two becoming one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see a head with a body. As, as united as your head is to your body, that is how united you are with Jesus Christ. Union with Christ. This is complete solidarity. Whereas formerly we had solidarity, solidarity with Adam, now we are in Christ. We are changed. We are free. We belong. We have communion with Him. We have a relationship with Him. We have fellowship with Him. This is no small deal. 
And this changes the way that we look, about, look at our lives. How can I be so distraught about my life when I have this as my new reality? How can I believe that I have wrecked my life when God has come along and told me that through faith, by grace, believing in Jesus Christ, I am permanently bonded with Christ himself? Powerful implications for the Christian life. When Christ died, you were in him, he says. My sin was in Christ. My failures were in Christ. My old nature was in Christ. I was in some fashion, not like literally, but spiritually represented by Jesus Christ when he died. My old nature was united with Christ in his death. As Jesus took the beating for my iniquities, I was in him. As Jesus was bruised for my transgressions, I was in him. As Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, I was in Christ. I died with Christ when he died. Verse 5 continues. Let me just read it again. For we have been united with him in a death like his. Look at the next line. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If this, then this. If I died with him, and three days later the stone rolled away and Jesus rose from the dead, I have a certain hope that I will be resurrected with Jesus. This is a total change of location for us. We were located in Adam, which led to sin, which led to death. Now what we're told is that we are located in Christ. We've died with Christ, and that leads to life with Christ. The apostle says here in verse 5, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. You notice he doesn't say, hopefully. You know, maybe we will be. Um, it's... I'm like 90% sure that we will be. No, he says, this is the hope that a Christian has. It's a certain kind of hope. It's a confidence in the future that we will be united with him. You see, so much of our fear is based on not knowing where we are and having no confidence in our future. And so therefore, when things go wrong at work, you spiral into frustration. When you face disappointments, you go on another cycle. When you are facing uncertainty as to whether or not you're going to have enough to get by and to make it, you are once again filled with anxiety. But Christ offers us a certain hope. A certain hope. You will be raised with Christ. You will be made alive once again with Him because you are already united with Him in life. Have you ever considered how this certain hope affects your day today? And it does. 
Look, we, we, I often hear Christians say things like, you know, yeah, I believe in heaven. I believe that one day things are going to be okay and I'm going to be raised and, you know, I'm going to be with God forever. But how does my faith affect me today? How does my faith get, get me some kind of joy today? How does it get me through today? How does it get me through the next couple of years or many years of my life? Look, don't you realize that your joy is always based on your future hope? So, for example, if I were to say that in a year from now, you're going to have $5 million given to you. Well, that's a future hope. You don't have that now. But knowing, having a certain hope that it is to come actually changes your joy right now. You see how that works? It allows you, you know, you go to the store and you're like, man, I only got $12 and I'm going to be eating hot dogs and spaghetti noodles with no sauce as my lunch. Like, this is just all I've got. This is my lot in life. You can face all of that. Differently now, with a certain kind of joy now. Why? It's because you have a certain hope that change is coming. Uh, on Thursday, it was the night before my son's fifth birthday, and I was talking to my wife about this. I was explaining this to her, and, and, I, and I told her, I said, like, even now, Thursday night, sitting on my bed, talking with my wife, I have joy now based on the fact that I can wake up tomorrow and work a meaningful job and celebrate my son's birthday and spend time with my kids and my wife and, and the church and my friends. Meaning we're, we're always changed in the moment now based on what we believe is going to come. Family, why doesn't this apply as we consider our certain hope in the resurrection? Consider this, if heaven will be bliss, like if heaven will be better than anything you've ever experienced and can imagine, and it will extend on for eternity with God, if that is true, then that changes the way you look at things today. It gives you joy in the moment. It shapes every day for the next 30, 40, 50, or even 60 years of your life, even if most of those years are going to be filled with hardship, you have a joy and a hope that cannot be taken from you. Why? Because it's certain. Your future is certain. If we died with Christ, what he's saying is, is that we have a certain hope. Now, our problem then is what? It's faith. I mean, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I really believe this? Do I believe I have this certain hope? We're saved not by the quality of our faith, but by the grace of God, which means even a Christian can at times struggle and battle for belief. And so I'm calling you, church, to believe this, to have faith that this certain hope is yours. It is yours in Christ. And it changes the power of sin in our life. It changes the, the power of sorrow in our life. And that's because it has changed the power of death in our life. 
We have a certain hope because we have Christ, and Christ is a certain Savior. Now, Paul applies this in two ways in verses 6 through 10. First, Paul says, in Christ, the power of sin is broken. Amen? Verse 6, look at verse 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The body of sin. He's not talking about your physical body as if sin somehow literally physically dwells in our bodies. No, your bodies are uh, made beautiful by God and become tools of sin as our minds and hearts choose to use our bodies in those ways. But the body, physical body, can be redeemed and is redeemed, and we'll talk more about that next week. So when he says the body of sin here, he's not referring to your physical body, but what he's referring to, or what he's doing is he's, he's, he's personifying sin, as if sin is something that can be killed, as if sin is something that can be crucified. It has been crucified with Christ, therefore we are no longer enslaved to sin. Don't you see that for the Christian in the gospel, we're not only forgiven of our sins, but we are freed from the power of sin. He restates this in verse 7. He says, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. This verse is so incredible. What he's saying is, is that death for the Christian is the vehicle, and I don't mean your physical death, but your spiritual or your, your, your uh, death in union with Christ, all right, death to sin is a vehicle right now during this physical life. It is a vehicle to freedom from the power of sin. Not that Christians don't ever sin again. We do. We still are in this flesh. We still struggle with sin. We still fight for faith, but what he's saying is, is that sin no longer has a power over us. It no longer enslaves us. Oh, a way you could look at this is, is to say this. What, what Paul is saying is that your union with Christ is greater than your connection with sin. Your union with Christ has actually changed your relationship with Sin. One pastor put it this way. He said, sin will come and go, but union with Christ is here to stay. Meaning sin had a beginning point and sin will have an ending point, but what you currently have in Jesus will never change. Another way to look at this is to understand that pursuing holiness now is actually uh, your new natural. It's not against the grain of, of who you are. You see, for us, it used to be when we were in Adam that to try and pursue holiness felt like it was against the grain and that it was more natural for us to sin. And Paul's saying, yes, that's the way you were. But union with Christ means that to pursue holiness 
is, 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 to, is to be who you have been created and recreated to be. It is natural for you now. It is actually against the grain and unnatural for the Christian to sin. Not that we don't do it. We do crazy things. But it's, it's not who we are. Meaning when a Christian pursues holiness, they have more joy, they have more freedom, they have more peace than sin ever can offer them. We're a new creation. So, will Christians continue in sin so that grace may abound? What's fascinating is that Paul doesn't say no because they know the rules. Paul doesn't say no because they have grit and determination to stop sinning. Paul answers that question with this massive statement that Christians are united with Jesus in his death and no longer does sin have a power over them. Union with Christ. But there's more. Secondly, in Christ, not only is the power of sin broken, but in Christ, the power of death is broken. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, I don't know if anybody in this room heard that. Because I think if you did, you would be shouting and rejoicing right now. Listen to this. He says, the death he died, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion or power over Christ. The death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Look, Paul is pointing us in our victory over sin, not to us. He's not saying, let's lift up the believer and let me show you how great the Christian is to show you why they won't continue in sin so that grace may abound. What he's doing is he's lifting up our Savior. And he's saying, look, the Christian is united to the Savior. And let me tell you how amazing the Savior is. He died once for all. And he will never die again. And the life he lives, he lives, he lives to God, which means he lives to the glory of the Father. The whole, que que uh, the whole answer to the question, then, is not about us, but it's about our Savior. It's about our union with Christ, which means here that we are alive forever in Christ. In the sanctuary of union with Christ, death is dead in Christ. As he rose 
from the dead, we are in that life. And we then have this resurrection hope, a resurrection that, by the way, is unique. You know, think about it. Jesus rose people up from the dead during his ministry. He rose up a little girl who he called Talitha Kumi, and, and she was 12 years old, and rose her up, and she eventually died again. Jesus rose Lazarus up from the dead, and he eventually died again. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with a body that is called imperishable, which means you can't kill it. It's beyond death. It's a different kind of body. It's a different kind of existence. And he's called then, for this reason, the firstborn of the dead. Well, if he's called firstborn, doesn't that mean there's going to be a second and thirdborn and fourthborn and fifthborn? Oh, he's got a lot of brothers and sisters, and I am one of them. Because he rose from the dead with an imperishable body that will, imperishable body that will never die again, we are alive in Christ forever. To be bonded with Christ in a resurrection like his means just this. John Knox once said, live in Christ. Live in Christ. And the flesh need not fear death. We're alive forever, but not only that, listen, we are alive forever to God. The life he lives, verse 10, he lives to God. All of his ways that Jesus currently lives and has lived his life are lived unto the glory of God. Saints, we have a certain hope in our union with Christ. And that hope is that we will live forever and that our forever life is to be lived unto the glory of God. So, going back to verse 1, will Christians continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Why? Paul says, look at Christ. Look at Christ. He is the Christ who died once for all. He's the Christ who died never to die again. He's the Christ who is no longer under the dominion of death. He is the Christ who died so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. He is our all-sufficient Christ. He's the death-defeating Christ. He is the life-giving Christ. He's the Spirit-sending Christ. He's our obedient Christ. He's our sacrificial Christ. He's our substitutional Christ. He is the resurrected Christ. He's the ascended Christ. He's the ruling Christ. He is the reigning Christ. He's the indwelling Christ, and He is the returning Christ. And we who believe in Him are in Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this wonderful reality that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, who were in Adam, are now in Christ, united with Him in His death and resurrection with a certain hope. 
Father, we thank you for such a great Savior. Lord, I pray that you would give us joy as a result as we look to Christ and as we live for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.